This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. As we draw toward the end of uh, the year, one of the things, you know, we talk about athletes of the year, these announcements always come out in the uh, the waning weeks of, of the year. Also is Time's Person of the Year. And there's been some speculation in the last couple of days about who that might be. Donald Trump himself tweeted and said it should be him, of course, because he's so great. Just ask him. And others uh, speculating about who it might be. Well, the announcement was made earlier this morning, and uh, i got to tell you, it was, it was a bit of a shock to a number of people. Alyssa Milano from Good Morning America on ABC made the announcement. Uh, this was about showing that this happens everywhere, that it's not just Hollywood, that it's not just actresses, that it's women on Wall Street, it's women in a hospital, it's caretakers, it's, it's women walking down the street. Um, you know, I have been uh, I have been harassed so many times I can't count. I've been assaulted, um, but this wasn't because I was an actress. These were instances that were, you know, if I was at a bar with with friends or uh, in a cab. Um, so I, I think it's really important that, uh, and I know it's hard because this Harvey Weinstein um, craziness has really taken over, but. What the Me Too campaign really does, and and what what Tarana Burke has has really enabled us all to do, is put the focus back on the victims, um, to give us a voice, to give us strength, to give us power. And what that enables us to do is say, no more, no more. We're not going to put up with this anymore. Alyssa Milano speaking on Good Morning America on ABC earlier this morning. The announcement, of course, from Time Magazine, the Person of the Year are. The silence breakers, those women who came forward, some famous, some not so famous, who decided not to just take it anymore and decided to speak up against the Harvey Weinsteins, against everybody. And there have been so many of them, of course, over the last couple of weeks that have come forward and the bravery that they have shown. What kind of an impact is this going to have? Is this an aberration in what has become an uphill struggle uh, for women who are being abused, sexually assaulted? Or is this the change that so many people were waiting for for years and years? Lenore LeCassick-Foss, director of the Sexual Assault Center of Hamilton, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Lenore, good morning. How are you today? Good morning. Wow, I'm, I'm, uh, what interesting news to start the day with. Well, today. yeah, what's your reaction to this? This caught a lot of people off guard. Uh, yeah, you know what? I have to say I was, I'm, was, I was excited. I, you know, I think that's my initial reaction. It was like, I, you know, to make the cover of Time as their person of the year, and just the kind of conversation um, that it will continue, because like, like you said, we've been having this conversation for a while about the Me Too campaign and about all, all the women who have come forward and some men who have come forward about their experiences of sexual harassment and assault in a variety of work contexts. And I just, I'm, I'm excited to see where this will go. Well, it has been front-page news in the past, and yes. uh, you know, with the Gomeshi trial here in Canada and a couple of other accusations that have been made in the States over the years, and like everything else in news cycles, though, Lenore, t- it tends to be a big story for a couple of days, and then it tends to fade away. This one doesn't seem to want to go away. No, and I think, I think hopefully your listeners out there will, will, will recognize that it's not going away because it's, it's such a big problem, and it's, it is, I think it, it's, it's not one of these things that, oh, this is, you know, news for today and now we're moving on. That this, you know, hopefully they're seeing and understanding that this affects so many people. It affects people that you and I know and and that your listeners will know folks who this is experienced to. It's so pervasive. And I think, 
I'm just surprised that it's still getting the the uh, you know the attention in media because it is not a new problem. It's not something you know. All women knew that this was going on for you know, centuries. Really, this is this is not a new social problem. But um, the fact that we're talking about it in this new way and really breaking silence, and that it's it's really on women's shoulders that that we're able to do this because they've come out and and said this has happened to me, and you know, me too. That hashtag and and it's it's been really important that we have that space. Well, in the Peace in Time magazine, uh, the latest edition, obviously, that, uh, that highlights uh, the hashtag MeToo movement and, and the women who broke the silence, uh, they relate the story of Ashley Judd, who in 1997 uh, yes. was invited up to Harvey Weinstein's uh, studio for Miramax. Uh, this was when she was just on the cusp of becoming a star, and yes. he, he, he tried to sexually assault her, and she got away, and she, she said she went downstairs and immediately wanted to tell anybody, and everybody said, look, everybody in the industry knows this about this guy, yeah. but yeah. good luck. I mean, who, nobody cares. And yeah. and essentially, she said, "I had nowhere to go, nobody to talk to." And yeah. if that's a movie star that has no platform, you figure, yeah. well, what about everyone else? Yeah, and I think that what I like about the Time piece is um, the uh, Time Magazine piece is that they are uh, also highlight highlighting uh, folks who work in the hotel industry or, or, or service industry, where you know uh, who don't make uh, paychecks like movie stars and who don't have. Uh, perhaps the security to be able to speak out who are still speaking out and you know s- folks who are are migrant laborers or or uh, you know working in very precarious situations still speaking out um, and you're right it, it it crosses all economic lines all social lines and if someone with all that money and 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 possible power as a movie star still really can't get any support or anyone to do anything that's that's has to make us shake our heads well when you look at the people that are, are highlighted in this and and of course how do you draw a number on this but it's it's not just the celebrities it's others who yeah. came forward some of them still anonymous because some of yeah. them still concerned about repercussions yeah. but the fact that it's out there and the fact that hashtag me too has taken off and hashtag men need to hold men responsible has taken yeah. off indicates that this seems to be getting some traction now yeah I do hope so. I hope that this is moving from sort of the the you know you know hot you know I guess a headline news uh, you know gone today like you said the news cycle to actually some more meaningful conversations within households within workplaces uh, amongst men to to reflect on behavior um, and to talk about you know you know what do I need to do if this is me. And, you know, for women to be able to know that there are others, they're not alone, that they didn't cause this to happen. So I, I hope it's leading to, to more reflective and meaningful community conversations. Well, and maybe it's starting to resonate with men, because and, and, that seemed to be part of the discussion that nobody seemed to be very comfortable with in the past. Yes. And and now men are starting to hold other men accountable. And, and maybe the best example we've seen of that over the last couple of days was uh, John Oliver, who was uh, moderating a, a panel discussion with uh, Dustin Hoffman and Robert De Niro, it was about the the movie uh, Wag the Dog uh, that uh, that was out there. It's the anniversary of it, and uh, the, the some of the subtext of the movie, of course, is about sexual harassment in, in the in the movie business. And John Oliver went basically uh, t- held Dustin Hoffman to account and said, "How could you be sitting up here and being so dismissive about this with the accusations that are against you?" And and Hoffman tried to go back and say, "Oh, you know, I apologize." And he says, "You don't get off with just an apology." Yes. You can't just let it go and say, here, that cleans the slate now. 
and and Oliver did an incredible job, and 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 Dustin Hoffman felt uncomfortable, and you know he should have felt uncomfortable. Yeah, I, I, you know what? I missed that. I'm going to have to go and look well, for that. It's all over yeah. social media. You got to check I, it out. I, yeah, I don't know how I missed that one, but that's that's what we're talking about. Is around men being a part of this dialogue. This is this is not a women's issue. This is an issue that men need to be involved in. And and you're right. We were not comfortable talking about the gendered nature of this of this issue. We were not comfortable. Uh, you know, even a few years ago when we try to talk about that this is something that predominantly affects women, we know it also impacts men, but it is predominantly affecting women. We get a lot of people feeling very angry, like we were man-hating or saying all men are bad, and that's absolutely absolutely not true. We know that, that most men do not engage in this behavior, but many men do, and the men who don't need to hold those accountable. So I'm really glad to hear that John Oliver took that public step and I think each and every person who's listening has the ability to hold their friends accountable to speak up to step up to not be silent to not let that person get away with stuff or say the things that they're saying or 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 make those quote-unquote jokes you know what this has done is is it's shone the light on something that's been going on and I know some people have responded and said hey enough is enough and even when Oliver was talking to, uh, to, to Dustin Hoppen about this, there were some people in the audience who were saying, just move on. No, you don't move on. You've yeah. got to shine the light on this because far too long now we've been suppressing this and saying, let's just not talk about it and pretend it doesn't go on. And then the story about Kevin Spacey comes up, about about his yeah. actions and uh, yeah. with uh, with the young men, an underage young yeah. fella at the time. Yeah. And, and, and now we hear stories about some of the other movies he was making and he was disruptive on the set because of uh, sexually inappropriate behavior. Yeah. How, how many other stories are there that we still don't know? And those, as, as I say, we're just talking about the celebrities now. What about in workplaces in downtown Hamilton and in Burlington and in St. Catharines and all over the place? You're absolutely right. It's it's happening in our community. It has been forever. So, yeah, you're right. And I think for those who are frustrated with all this attention it's getting and who want to say move on, I think it's really important to think about the women who this has affected and some of the the lasting, lasting impacts, whether they've lost their job or been forced to leave their job because they were, uh, you know, traumatized from the situation, uh, who had developed depression or other mental health challenges because of the impact of the harassment that they were dealing with. Like we... I know if you've not experienced this or you're not aware of this, you might think, why is all this conversation happening? But it, it, it has real-life consequences for the women who this impacts, and I think it's important for us to hear that and realize that and know that you're right. It's, we, we, we can't move on. We have to shine the light on it. One of the quotes in the timepiece today from one of those women, one of the hashtag MeToo women, uh, talked about what, her acute, what, the, what the person that actually assaulted her pr- threatened her with. If she went public, he said, this is a quote in the article. He said, if I ever wronged him, he would have me kidnapped, have my eyes gouged out with a big pen and throw me into the Hudson River. Yeah, I saw uh, that. That's, that's, that's what some people are facing. Yeah. Maybe not threats of those words, but threats of that magnitude in, in whatever case. Absolutely. Uh, we, it's yeah, it's frightening. Fear. Yeah. And that's the thing is people, you know, uh, yeah, I didn't even touch on that piece. I'm so glad you raised it, uh, Bill, that for some it's a real fear. And we know, um, you know, over 20 years ago, uh, uh, a woman, it was a Sears employee, Teresa Vince, she was actually killed by her harasser. Uh, and this was in Chatham, on, uh, Ontario. So th- but we don't, re- we don't remember that. So this is like, this is over 20 years ago, like I think 25 years ago now. Um, and, and that, you know, for, for her and her family, 
you know, her fear it ended up being real. Like it validated that she was killed by her harasser. This is something that's real. Well, it's interesting a time, from a timeline standpoint, guys. I know they referenced this in the article in Time Magazine, but we talked about this on the show just a couple of weeks ago. We just uh, commemorated the anniversary of uh, the sexual assault allegations against uh, a Supreme Court nominee at that time, and of course, yeah. Anita Hill, who was a staff member. Yeah. And she was vilified in the media right. and in other yeah. circles for trying to re- re- ruin the career of, of Clarence Thomas. How could she yeah. possibly do this? Yeah. And, and boy, I, I'd like to think we've come a long way from then till now, but I'm not so sure sometimes. No, you know, I, I, I agree. There were all these pioneering women who spoke up and, and, and took a lot of heat for it, for sure. Um, and, yeah, I, I'd like to hope that we're in a different place, but I still... Uh, I'm hearing people commenting on, well, oh, you know, look at look at the the impact on that man. He's lost his job now. That's not fair. Um, and and really, uh, folks, you know, I think incorrect, in, incorrectly identifying with the perpetrators of this crime. But, you know, if a person lost their job, it's because of their behavior and their choices, not because someone said you did this to me and made it public. You know, I think we have to really look at that and look put the blame where the blame goes it's a, a bold move by time magazine and uh, obviously i think an idea whose time has come and certainly i hope it uh, carries on and, and gives uh, some wind beneath the wings uh to this uh, hashtag me too movement uh, lenore thanks as always always a pleasure talking to you on the show yeah thank you so much bill and have a great day you too lenore lacassic foss director of sasha the sexual assault center uh you can check it out obviously time magazine online and uh, get the uh, the full details about the story but the person of the year uh, the women who broke the silence. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Here's a little good news today. Well, we got some, uh, by way of an announcement uh, being made, a cooperative announcement between the Hamilton Port Authority and Mohawk College uh, moments ago down by the uh, the waterfront. Uh, joining us to talk about that is Larissa Fenn, who is the Director of Public Affairs for the Hamilton Port Authority. Larissa, how are you doing this morning? I'm great, Bill. How are you? Fabulous. Uh, I'm really excited about what's going to happen here. And also Ron McCurley, the president of Mohawk College. Ron, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Good morning, Bill. You know, every time we have one of these announcements about some fabulous new initiative here to try to teach people, there's Mohawk College always lurking in the foreground here, Ron. But uh, that's part of the mandate. That's what you guys are all about, isn't it? Well, it is. And uh, this particular one came out of the Mayor's Blue Ribbon Task Force on Workforce Development. And what a great partnership opportunity we we found with the Port Authority. Well, it was just a couple of minutes ago that I was talking about Hamilton Airport and uh, how important uh, our transportation network is for our local economy here. We, you know, as a matter of fact, we're going to talk with Kathy Puckering from the airport later on the show today. But this is this is a big deal today between the Port Authority and uh, and Mohawk College uh, because it, it talks about using the assets that we have here in the city and and tailoring a program. Uh, for students so that they can be, as as you talked about, Ron, in, in the ads from Mohawk College, future-ready. This is a, a great example of a hands-on experience. Yeah, and so we, it, for us, Bill, it's a great opportunity. It's a new post-grad certificate in supply chain management. Uh, so this is uh, uh, jobs in, in logistics and the ability to uh, work in some of the uh, 2,100 jobs that are in the transportation-intensive industries uh, surrounding uh, in and around Hamilton, so uh, a perfect opportunity, we think, to prepare students for real real great jobs. And obviously the, the Port Authority is involved in this because, of the, well, let's face it, I mean, they're the ones that oversee some of the great work that's going on down there. But this is more than just saying, yeah, come on down, Larissa, you guys are putting your money where your mouth is. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, to the tune of uh, to the tune of thirty thousand dollars announced today, ten thousand of which will go to support the City School by Mohawk skills training programs that ha- happen right here in our North End neighborhood, and then a further twenty thousand dollars. Um, to go directly to students who are enrolled in the supply chain management certificate program to support their tuition. So we're we're hoping that uh, some students within the region will take advantage of that and explore the really great opportunities in supply chain um, management uh, with jobs that are available now here in Hamilton, at the port, at the airport, at lots of our other transportation intensive businesses in the city. This is a fabulous example of the coordination that goes on between uh, the academic side of things and, and the business practical side of things. And I, I know it was part of the mandate of the community college system way back when, uh, Ron, when, when Bill Davis started the system way back in around 1970-ish or so, I guess. But uh, you're, you're really the personification of this right now. And the work that Mohawk has done over the last number of years, with the Port Authority in particular, and some of the great work that's gone on down there. Well, interesting. Uh, Bill Davis actually phoned me last week. He lives in Brampton, as you yeah. know, and phoned yeah. to congratulate the college and what we were doing, which he thought was back to the roots of what colleges were really intended to be, which is connected to the community, integrated with industry, focused on helping people uh, get the uh, uh, skills that they need to be able to take on great jobs and therefore grow the communities. And so that's really what we're trying to do here, and that really is tied into our strategic priorities bill, which is all about partnerships with industry, partnerships with uh, other parts, uh, other players in the city to try to benefit students and create opportunities and jobs and, and careers for them. This is as good a topic as any, too, to talk about some of the work that's going on down at the port, Larissa. Uh, it's, it's not something that's maybe front of mind for an awful lot of people unless they're in that area. Uh, you, you can talk about the airport because you see the planes going overhead. But this is one of the busiest ports in the Great Lakes. Uh, it's a real asset, and it's one of the keys to a Hamilton's economic future. Yeah, absolutely. It is the largest port in Ontario. We handle more cargo than the uh, other, all the other Lake Ontario ports combined. So it really is the the western gateway between the Greater Toronto Hamilton area and the world. We uh, handle more than uh, 1.9 billion dollars of cargo every year, and uh, and about three quarters of that is international. Um, import-export cargo. So it, it really is an international gateway. And when we start talking about job uh, creation and job retention in this community, uh, we have to focus on the port. Uh, again, there's an awful lot of activity going on down there. It's not just about boats coming and loading and offloading and, and off they go again. There's a lot of subsidiary industries that are actually flourishing down at the waterfront. Yeah, absolutely. In the last Um, say seven or eight years, we've had more than $300 million in investment. So businesses coming in, um, recognizing the uh, competitive advantage that locating in Hamilton offers and particularly connecting to the transportation infrastructure here. And some really recent examples, a new $50 million uh, grain export terminal that uh, G3 Canada Limited has has built out at Eastport and uh, Parrish and Heimbecker's new flour mill. Again, as you say, an upstream um, integrated facility, uh, $45 million investment right here at the port that um, capitalizes on the great transportation infrastructure that we have. It's the it's the first flour mill built in Ontario in 75 years. Well, you know, we brag about the fact that we have such a very, a very big agri-food industry here in, in Hamilton. 
that uh, that is uh, I think it's, it's one of the key elements of what's going on here. But obviously, you've got to get that product to market, and and that, the port plays a big role there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, we about two thirds of our recent investments have come in that agri food sector. It really has been the the thing that. Um, has helped us transition the uh, kinds of uh, the kinds of businesses and the kinds of cargo that we're seeing coming through the port. And again, very much um, Hamilton's location geographically, our access to the border within 45 minutes, and all of those modes of transportation coming together that are really the thing that's attracting them. But again, you know, the need that that uh, we are hearing from those businesses is is about a skilled workforce mm-hmm. being able to support all of that investment that's coming. But, Ron, you started building those bridges some time ago, the partnerships uh, with some of the other uh, folks down around the port there, McKeel Marine a few years ago. And, and, of course, that's a great relationship that's developed between you and, and uh, McKeel Marine and the college, and we've seen that as a mutually beneficial relationship. But, but again, it's tailoring the programs in the Hamilton area to where the jobs are going to be in the Hamilton area. And we have a lot of capacity to do that. So... Uh, this particular uh, program, this postgraduate certificate in supply chain management, um, uh, is is coming on stream in January 2018. We'll have we'll be able to have uh, 40 students in the first intake, but we have uh, probably a dozen examples of that over the last year. Where, based on the needs of industry, we've been able to put together a program very specific and then start to attract uh, students in there that want a career in that field. And a lot of it is just. Uh, lack of awareness, um, lack of awareness in part in terms of what jobs are available, which is part of what the Blue Ribbon Task Force is intended to do. And part of it is lack of awareness on the part of students and parents in terms of these great paying jobs that are uh, going wanting right now for the lack of uh, skilled workforce to take them on. And our job in part we see is a matchmaker between the two, between industry and, and students to try to fill these jobs. Well, we saw that when you had us down there. We did our show on location, of course, from the Stony Creek campus, and uh, we started talking to some of the students that were involved in some of the co-op programs and welding programs and things of this nature. And it was an eye-opener for an awful lot of us that sort of knew what was going on. But when you start talking to some of the people involved in the program, first of all, they're making pretty good money. Second, they're getting trained in, in, in what is really becoming a growing need in this community for that kind of labor. And at the same time, they're, they're making those relationships with employers that are basically saying, you've graduated, good, now we want to bring you on full-time. It's, it's a great transition. Well, and it is, and part of this program actually will be working with the, uh, the Port of Hamilton Port Authority on uh, opportunities with uh, their the companies that work with them to make sure that there are capstone projects available for students so the students get exposed to the real problems that are happening in those uh, companies and the companies get exposed to the, the students that are soon going to be graduates that uh, could help them solve those problems long term. Listen, I want you to blow your horn about something else because I, I I know a little bit about this program, but I know this was part of the announcement today about how when you develop these partnerships with uh, your friends at the Port Authority and Larsa and, and the other staff down there and Ian Hamilton, uh, that you also try to tailor it to some of the existing programs. And you've got a program that you started a little while ago uh, called City School, uh, this mobile classroom situation. And and I know that the, the kind of the, the focus for that is the Eva Rothwell Center down on Wentler Street. But but talk to us about what a success that has been and how it fits into what you're going to do now with the Port Authority. Yeah, well, we knew there was a need and a, a, a 
challenge in Hamilton to get people up on the West Mountain to our main campus and get them introduced to uh, to college a college program. This is uh, can be daunting and it can be challenging for people who um, uh, have struggled to connect from high school to post secondary education. So the concept of city school is to take the school into the neighborhoods. And we have three locations now, two fixed, uh, the Eva Rothwell Center, the, the uh, upper floor of the uh, main library downtown, as well as a mobile unit. And we, we then bring free college education, the first two courses at least, to the students through any of these three locations and try to remove all the barriers and really provide very small classes, uh, a very strong set of supports so that we can help people start to realize their dream of post-secondary education. We can really gear uh, those classes to the needs of the, uh, of the local neighborhood. And one of the keys to that, is, as we discovered when we talked to some of those students, is you just touched on it, the smaller classroom. The, it's, it's not quite one-on-one, but boy, there's a very intimate setting there, which is very helpful to the students. Well, in our mobile classroom right now, we have, uh, we have nine students doing welding. And um, so they will get uh, they will get a couple welding tickets when they're d- uh, when they're done. It's on the uh, uh, the center on Barton, and uh, and I think uh, most of them already have uh, job opportunities now once they once they're done. So that makes a difference. And they may choose to come into a welding apprenticeship program or uh, just uh, other programs at the college, or they may go straight into the workforce. But at least then they'll have some skills to start to earn an income, and they can, they'll have the freedom to make the choice in terms of what they want to do after that. Larissa, let's talk about what's going on with the port in the future, because there's a, a great deal of opportunity. And I know there's some discussion about the U.S. steel lands and things of that nature, and, and you guys are in there someplace at the table, and I don't know how that's going to work out just yet. But it seems when we start talking about economic development and where Hamilton's going these days with the, the new economy and the way that it's starting to evolve right now, that, that there is so much opportunity right now at the port uh, for future expansion and future growth with all kinds of industries. Oh, absolutely. We're we're still seeing a lot of demand from companies wanting to come and locate in Hamilton, wanting to um, take advantage of the the great transportation infrastructure that's here. And um, of course, we are, as you know, on the on the hunt for for new space uh, to expand and and accommodate those inter- industries, but also. Um, taking a look at our existing footprint, how can we use it more efficiently and reconfigure it to, to accommodate uh, newer industries that typically um, different from industries of, of 30 or 40 years ago have a smaller footprint, they're more compact, more sustainable, um, more technology intensive. So how can we continue to uh, grow and transition um, the port to to uh, be the home for these new industries, and um, and and how what does that mean for the the surrounding labor force? How can we make the labor force yet another um, compelling reason to come and bring your your business to the port of Hamilton? And, and I know that when we talk about goods movement and getting things to market, an awful lot of the time the conversations circle around road transportation and rail transportation and air, and then and we've got them all here in Hamilton, but we we would. Forget about short, short cheese sipping and things of this nature at our own peril, because I know that's become a very, very intricate part of the transportation system. And when you take any any material that you're moving at any time, Lars, oftentimes 
it's going to take advantage of two or three of those modes of transportation. It may well, in fact, be a, a cargo carrier that's going to be on a boat, and then it may go onto a rail, and then it may go on. You don't know where it's going to go at any point. But, uh, you know, when you say what's the most important, the answer, I guess, is all of them, really. Oh, absolutely. You know, not 90% of all of the things you'll touch today have traveled by ship at some point. So your cup of coffee, the coffee, the sugar, the cup it's in, all of those things at some point in their um, journey to you have, have made that, that voyage by water. And then you're right, when, the, when they reach Canada, they are often transloaded um, onto other modes of transportation. And so efficient connections and smoothing out the, the wrinkles in the supply chain uh, brings down costs for industry, brings down costs for consumers, and it's all done a little bit um, invisibly. You know, the, Ron talked about the, the lack of awareness about some of the, the opportunities in these fields, and that is, that's a big challenge for supply chain because uh, things, particularly at this time of year, seem to appear on our doorsteps rather by magic, but it's, it's not magic, it's supply chain management. So. Um, uh, there, are, there are lots of good careers to be had in, in that field, and um, our announcement today was a real step forward to att- attracting new students in, uh, into that um, world of opportunity. Well, because I know that having talked to other municipalities, because uh, everybody's obviously trying to move forward into the 21st century, and when you talk about the tools that are needed for economic prosperity and sustainability, for that matter. They talk about transportation. Uh, you know, boy, I wish you had a great ne- ra- rail network and road network and, and short-sea shipping and, and air. It's all here in Hamilton. I mean, it's it's we're tailor-made for it right now, but the other key element, of course, is, is that coordination with the academic facilities like Mohawk College to make sure that, as you say, that workforce that you need for, for the expansion that's going to be happening is readily available. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. We are really pleased to... Um, have developed this partnership over the course of, of many months um, to leading up to this point, working closely with Mohawk to develop a program that really does uh, meet the needs uh, of the employers on portlands and off-portlands in the transportation um, intensive industries all throughout Hamilton. Uh, Mohawk has just done a spectacular job of, of uh, helping us to, to fill that gap and, and come up with a really excellent program. Well, and obviously this is not something that just came into your head the other day, Ron. You've already got the, the program set up, but you guys start right after Christmas. Yeah, so we've been working on this for a while, uh, as was mentioned, and we uh, will have an intake of 40 students in January. Uh, so the program is uh, is going live, and it's a, it's a nine-month program, so um, we'll start graduating people towards the end of 2018. Excellent stuff. Great news story for the city. Great news for Hamilton's economic future. And just another great example of the coordination that's going on between uh, uh, the business leaders and the academic leaders in this community to, uh, to make sure that we're ready and going. Uh, future ready, I guess, Ron, if I can borrow your phrase one more time. Uh, congratulations to all of you. I know that, uh, that you're only two of the principals involved. I know the folks at Fluke were down there. Ian Hamilton from the port was there with you, Larissa. Uh, it's a great news story, and there's so many fabulous things that are going to happen as a result of this. Uh, continued good luck with all of you as uh, we move forward here. Thanks for the time today. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. Larissa Fenn, Director of Public Affairs for the Hamilton Port Authority, and Ron McCurley, President of Mohawk College. This fabulous uh, new program in coordination between the Port Authority and another program that's going to get people ready. I mean, you, you, you start this course, if you're one of the, th- the number that Ron just talked about, you start the course in January. By the end of the year, you've already got your certificate, and bingo, you're working, making good money. Not bad. 
You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. The Ontario government decided uh, the other day to make another announcement, and they are going to come to our rescue, and they decided they are going to reform the auto insurance system here in Ontario, yet again. Uh, they say to combat fraud and to slash rates. Uh, here we go again. Uh, and, and they've talked about a number of dis- different initiatives, but what, what galls me about this, and I talked about this on my commentary at 810 this morning, is once again, they seem to simply say, you know the reason your rates are so high in Ontario? Well, you've got unscrupulous lawyers that are ripping off the system. You've got fraudsters that are rampant throughout the system. And these poor insurance companies are having to, to carry the ball on this. Give me a break. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Andrew Spurgeon, who is a partner in Personal Injury Law Group at Rossum McBride here in Hamilton, also an adjunct professor at the University of Western Ontario Law School, where he teaches insurance law. It's good to have you in here. Thanks, Andrew, for coming in. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate Can we get it. a couple of people uh, from Queen's Park to sit in on some of your law classes at Western? Uh, Maybe no. get an understanding about what this is all about? Yeah, it would be nice if they could, but unfortunately, it's a bit far away for them to go. All right, I, I got to get you to comment on this, and because uh, you've been practicing and doing this for a long time in, in the in province of Ontario now. This is not the first time the provincial government has, quote-unquote, decided to fix the problem. Uh, are they even focusing on where the problem is? I'm not sure they are. Uh, I can tell you, I've been doing this work for about 20 years, and I think in my time, in that 20 years, they've changed the system about six times. Uh, every three or four years, there's a, an urge to implement changes. And the interesting thing is, as you watch the trend line, those changes are always to reduce benefits available to people uh, who are in car accidents. And uh, what I, when I have a client come through the door and I say to them, uh, you know, I, I give them a basic spiel about here's, here's auto insurance in five minutes or even less. And I tell people they have two sets of rights when they're hurt in a car accident. One is they might, depending if whose fault it is, sue the person on the other side of the table who hit them. But the more important thing for a lot of people is their accident benefits. And that's a, uh, a right you have because you have a contract of insurance with a, an insurance company. And the contract of insurance uh, is a standard form that everybody gets who, has a, who drives a car in Ontario or who, who has a, an insurance contract for auto insurance in Ontario. And you get standard accident benefits, and they include income replacement, which is actually quite modest. It's 70% of your gross income up to a ceiling of usually the minimum is 400 bucks a week. Now, that's not a lot of money. Uh, 400 bucks a week at 70%, if you were to calculate what a gross income that covers, is about $32,000. So you get $20,000, $20,650 actually a year if you're unable to work. Um, a lot of people are shocked that that's all they bought. Uh, you can buy higher thresholds of, uh, of six. But eight. isn't that because the focus, and I think the government's done it again with yeah. this announcement, the focus is on rates. Right. They always say, oh, your rates are too high. Well, we're going to do something about it. Kathleen Wynne made a big deal about that in the last yeah. election. Yeah. I'm going to lower rates. And it's it's the art of deflection, isn't it, Andrew? I, yeah. I'm not saying rates aren't important. I mean, sure, uh, you, you, they're, they're highest in the in the country, and that should be a problem. But nobody's having the discussion about what you're getting for that. God yeah. forbid you should get in an accident. You're in big trouble in this province. Oh, yeah. It's, it's quite serious what, what, what can happen to a person when they're in an accident. Uh, right now, as it exists, uh, there's three different thresholds of, of, of injury a person can have, uh, and you get different benefits. If you're in what's called the mind injury guideline, you get 3500 bucks of canned physiotherapy or other sorts of care. Uh, if you're in the middle category, you get up to $65,000 over five years, and that includes attendant care. So if you really can't even move and you need somebody to you know, help with your toileting uh, while you're um, while you're recovering. Well, you have to pay people for that. 
that's another level. And the next one is a, it's called catastrophic impairment. And catastrophic impairment is for people who have really horrific injuries, life-altering injuries. And those injuries are uh, and the, when you when you're deemed cat, there's a very very strict definition of it. And the definition about a year and a half ago got a lot stricter. It used to be, or I should say now, about only 25% of people in car accidents who used to be able to get CAT are no, now going to get that threshold. So let me, let me, I want to repeat that because that's important. If I suffered an injury five years ago and was declared as a catastrophic impairment, okay, mm -hmm. if I have that same accident today, I'm probably not going to be declared catastrophic. In other words, the insurance industry's raised the bar and said, now nah, you're not catastrophic yeah, anymore. That's right. Simply the, so they don't have to pay as much. Yeah, the definitions of what is a catastrophic impairment have gotten tighter. And we don't really I'm, I'm hurt just as badly. Yeah, no, but you're now hurt they're just saying, as badly. Ah, too bad, so sad. You're not yeah. going to get as much money. And the other aspect of it is it used to be uh, before a couple of years, uh, before uh, last July, July 6, uh, 2016, uh, if you had an accident, you would have been entitled to up to a million dollars of attendant care coverage and up to a million dollars for medical rehabilitation. Now it's up to a million dollars for both together. So your benefit's been cut in half. Now, when you think about attendant care, if you're a paraplegic or a quadriplegic individual because of a car accident. It's not hard to imagine, you know, $6,000 a month of care. And at a million dollars, $6,000 a month is going to take you through 16, 17, 18 years, depending on, on some things. Well, now it, that's effectively, the, the, to the total benefit's been cut in half. So what's going to happen to those people uh, after 20 years? Who's going to pay for them? Well, you had clients like this. I've talked to other people that are in personal yep. injury. It, a 19, 20-year-old gets involved in an accident, a motorcycle accident or whatever. All yep. of a sudden, they're wheelchair-bound. Right. And, and let, let's, I, I want to walk through that hypothetical process because you, you're talking about end of the game where maybe there is finally going to be a settlement. Mm -hmm. uh, and you may look at that and say, well, that's a pretty big number, but that person's hopefully going to live for another 30 or 40 years. Yep. What happens when the money runs out? Then the money runs out. I guess they're going to welfare, the government, the taxpayer will pay, ultimately. If they, if they cannot get a job uh, and sustain their lives, and the cost of care for them is prohibitive, uh, somebody's going to have to take care of them. All right, I got a couple of other questions that I think are very germane to this. You mentioned there are three different levels of, of classifications of injury. Right. Who gets to determine what level you fall into? Well, that's an interesting question right now. Uh, if, you, if you're, for example, seeking to be declared catastrophically impaired, you would make an application to your insurer. They say yes or no. If they accept it, great. If they say no, what happens now is that you have to go to what's called the Licensing Appeal Tribunal. Okay? It used to be before a year and a half ago. It's not free. Uh, no, it's not free, and I'll tell you about that in a second. But it used to be the case you could sue in court or do an arbitration. Okay? And one of the magic... Wonderful, wonderful things about court is that there's a general rule under the Courts of Justice Act, uh, Section 131 of the Courts of Justice Act, that says costs are in the discretion of, of a judge. The costs of litigation are in the discretion of the judge, and the general rule is the loser pays the winner, okay? At least a far, large part of it. Under our new system, now you have to go to this licensing appeal tribunal. There are no costs awarded in the licensing appeal tribunal. So if it costs you $20,000 to prove that you are indeed catastrophically impaired, you eat it. Um, that's a huge issue. Okay, now it's worth it to to pursue that, and hopefully you'll you know be able to get a lawyer who will who will go along and help you with that. It isn't just the lawyer though. To prove catastrophic impairment, it's a very very particular and unique definition of injury, and you need physicians 
who understand the definitions. The way you calculate but, but it. But there is part of the problem. Yeah. If, the, if the insurance company says no, yeah. and, and that happens a lot, I mean, yes. I know that that's not what they put in their commercials, mm-hmm. uh, that they're, they, we're your buddy, we'll be there for you. But right. a lot of the time, the answer is no. We don't think you're hurt, hurt as badly as you think. Right. And, and we got a big team of doctors here that are going to write letters and say, we think he's not hurt badly. Right. So I'm, if I've got, as the agreed party now, I've got to go hire doctors to say, no, that's not true. Yeah. Well, that costs money. Yeah. And you have to find doctors. Well, who's who driving the cost up? It was the insurance company because they denied the claim. Yeah. Yeah. And the interesting thing but about- But the government and the insurance companies are blaming me yeah. for being a fraudster. In other words, yeah. I'm trying to milk the company. Give me a break. Yeah. Well, one of the interesting things about, about that, and, and the government in its-, uh, in its um, background or material yesterday was pointing out that they're trying they're going to combat fraud now what, what what's very interesting about it is that the assertion of fraud comes from the industry itself and you and they say there's 1.6 billion dollars of fraud in the system well when the auditor general did an assessment or a study uh, seven years ago now they listened to the insurance industry and they reported in the report that the insurance industry is saying there's 1.3 billion dollars of fraud in the system well if you actually look at the size of the system that growth is basically the same percentage. There, the allegation really is it's, there's 15% of fraud. 15% of the cost is fraud. Um, that just does not make sense to me at all. Yeah, I, but they're characterizing, from what I've read, Andrew, they're characterizing me fighting for what I think is uh, what I'm entitled to as fraud. I'm, I'm trying to scam the system because yeah. I didn't just go away when they said, no, you're not catastrophically impaired. Yeah, there is a perspective there that, that it says, well, it, you know, if you feel you're more hurt than we think you are, you're really not hurt, and they're at to the level you, you think you are, and really you're just trying to scam the system. There is a, an attitudinal problem there in some respects. Um, you know, so, but that's driving costs up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now I've got to hire a lawyer who's going to get hire doctors who's going to have to. Yep. They're going to have to go to court. All yep. right, that's going to cost. As you said, could yep. be twenty, could be thirty thousand mm-hmm. dollars. That money's got to come from someplace. Yeah. Yet, yet, and then you've got the finance minister and the premier saying, "Well, you're driving up costs by doing that." Yeah. Well, one of the pro- one of the interesting things here is is you can all the real agenda I think here is to define the problem out of existence. If you have physicians who are dismissive of a, a complaint, a concern, and a report of a feeling in a person, uh, you really don't have a problem. One of the interesting things about physicians and what physicians do in performing a diagnosis of somebody, the most important thing they need to do is listen to the patient. You can do tests all over the place, but what the patient tells you and the, taking their history and understanding what's going on in life is the best and the most important aspect of, or most important tool in figuring out what's wrong. And one of the problems that I'm s- going to see coming down the road here, like the government in its, in its proposals uh, is, is, going to, is doing several things. One, of the, one thing they want to do is create standard treatment plans. They just said that's what they're going to do. Uh, for various problems. Well, that sounds great on paper. It looks great on paper, but are, are any two injuries the same? Well, no. The answer is to that is no. An injury may be the same, but the human, the person who's injured is, is different. And doctors will talk about comorbidity, co- comorbidities. And comorbidities is when you have X problem and Y problem and you, and you introduce Z problem to the, to the mix. Then what happens to that person? So, for example, if you're a diabetic, and lots of people are diabetics, if you have a lower limb injury, uh, your capacity to heal is is much compromised compared to, let's say, you're a 20-year-old athlete. So how are you going to deal with a lower leg injury uh, as a diabetic 
and you have a CAN treatment plan for that sort of problem. Well, the CAN treatment plan may be actually geared not to the 75-year-old diabetic, but the 20-year-old athlete. Well, if you don't make, if you don't fit, the, if you're a square peg trying to fit in that round hole, are, is is that treatment going to help you? Maybe not. And what are they going to allow for in terms of tra tailoring treatment to an individual for complex cases and challenging cases? So here's but the way you're explaining this now, and I'm glad you had the time to do this, because I, I want our listeners to get this, this understanding here that there are two sides to this story. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, the insurance companies are crying crocodile tears and saying, you know, this is cutting into our profits. Not really, because their profits to a certain extent are guaranteed by legislation. Yeah, the, the, well, for example, the government wants to control or have an impact on your premiums. Well, how are your premiums calculated? Well, uh, I don't know how your premium is calculated. There's different methodologies for calculating how your premium goes, but the aggregate premiums that are charged across the board for all drivers, okay, are calculated at a certain level. And what the insurance industry, and there's a methodology by, say, by, by looking at what is the, the aggregate liability the industry has to pay and its line item for accident benefits versus tort claims. And then they sort of figure, and, and also for uh, damage coverage, uh, physical property damage coverage, and they sort of say, well, what is our exposure? And then they look at, well, how much do we have to charge? And then we build in our rate of profit. And the rate of profit is supposed to be about 12%. So there's almost a guarantee, they, they calculate the premium based upon the need and say, so, well, where are we going to squeeze? Well, we're not going to squeeze the profit, we're going to squeeze the customer. That's the agenda. The, the essence here is that the system is stacked against the, the person, the aggrieved party, the injured party. Yeah. And it makes it very difficult. Yeah. And you've got insurance companies that say, well, we're not ready to settle. We, uh, yeah. Well, that, that means another hearing. That means, uh, and, and so these costs get driven up. And then they, they, it, it's like the, the old story about the guy that shoots his mother and father and then you know, claims mercy because he's an orphan. Yeah. Uh, they're causing the problem by delaying the system. And, and then they're turning around and blaming lawyers and yeah. blaming what they consider to be scammers yeah. for this. And, and it's, it's, the thing is totally reversed here. And, and the government just seems to lay over and say, oh, these poor guys, we have to do something about this. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you one of the most interesting little tidbits of ins insurance law that is, I, when I explain things to people, it's very fascinating. If you were to sue somebody for an accident and you're hurt and you make a general damage claim, a claim for pain and suffering, if your claim is worth less than 127000 bucks, a jury makes a decision and say, oh, golly gee whiz, we think you're, were, you're really hurt. We want to give you 100000 bucks." There's a deductible to that the jury isn't told about. It's almost 40000 bucks. So they think they're giving you 100 because they think you're really hurt. But actually, you get 60. So when you actually finish the trial... Uh, Where the, does the other money go? Well, that's your gift to the Ontario insurance industry. Uh, not to the lawyer. No. Back to the insurance company. Yes. Yes. It's the jury thinks they're giving you a hundred, but you're getting sixty. Okay? And and the jury isn't instructed about the deductible. They probably don't know the deductible unless there's a member on the jury who has been through this. Right? And and that's something that you leave on the table if you're hurt. Now, when you think about well, that is a hundred thousand dollars a lot of money. Yeah, a hundred thousand dollars is a lot of money to anybody. But in terms of the spectrum of injury, if you were to become a paraplegic or quadriplegic, because of an accident, and you sue an, uh, somebody who caused that to you, the value of that claim based on case law would be around $370,000. So picture, your, picture your, your injury. Where are you between three and, or zero and 370000 bucks? You know, a $100,000 injury is a pretty serious injury, very serious injury. And you're leaving 40, 000, just under $40,000 on the table.
I, if there's scamming going on in the system, it may well, well, I don't want to go there. But uh, thanks so much for coming in and talking about this. Uh, I, I want to follow up on this. We'll probably do something like this again in a couple of weeks as they try to move forward on some of this legislation. But I think it's important for consumers to know exactly what's going on with this. Andrew, thanks so much. Great to see you again. Thanks, Bill. Andrew Spurgeon, a partner, of course, with Ross and McBride, personal energy lawyers, and, of course, I'm adjunct professor of law at University of Washington, Ontario. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.